are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. This episode of Rootbound is brought to you by the family Astera Asteraceae. 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 Uh, the asters. You know, sunflowers and stuff. That's the sponsor. Greetings, listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. I am your host. My name is Steve, and Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the show to share with us all about a plant that means something to them. And then I share with the guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. It is the philosophy of the show that everybody has a plant that is meaningful to them, at least one. And that's because plants are so fundamental to our lives as humans on this planet. Now, I have to share with you uh, something I learned <laughs> that I was very surprised by. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, you will probably be surprised by it too. So today, our guest is going to talk about an orchid. And this is actually the first orchid we're talking about on Rootbound, which is a little bit surprising, as you will hear later in the show, because orchids are one of the most abundant genera, or actually families, of flowering plants. There are so many of them, yet we're only talking about our first one today. So... As I do often, and listeners of the show will know, I'm very interested in etymology. And so uh, one thing we didn't cover in the episode with our guest today is the etymology of the word orchid. And so I said, well, let me look that up and share that with the audience at the beginning of the show. Uh, so I did that, and uh, the uh, origin of the word orchid comes from the ancient Greek word orchis. And that word means testicle. <laughs> What can I say? It's That's what it means. And apparently that comes from the way the roots of certain tuberous orchids look. You can Google it if you want or or not, uh, but that is what the word means. And uh, yes, I was a little bit surprised by that, as you can imagine. And apparently this interpretation of the look of certain orchids was so common that it transcended language. And in fact, in Old English, uh, this certain kind of orchid that had this certain kind of look was known as bolacourt. So there you go. Let's meet our guest. What uh, orchids can you name? Oh, that's easy. None. Uh, well, here are the orchids that I can name. Baclardia, Belagladis, Benthamia, Diphylax, Dipodium, Evotella. Uh, Raymond, uh, you know how much I love hearing you talk about orchids. Great. Then there's Arianxis. Uh, but I would love to hear more about our guest. Hi, Evan. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. The plant that I am here to share with you today is the thunderstorm orchid, uh, Dendrobium oh. criminatum. Whoa. Okay, so that's a little bit uh, germane because I don't know if the uh, audience can hear right now, but we're kind of starting a thunderstorm right here <laughs> in my where I am, and I didn't know that was the name of your plant. And of course, uh, I don't think the thunderstorm knew that either, but if you hear extra rain sound coming from my end, audience, that's what's going on. But yes, wow, that is a dramatic name. When you sent me, I think you sent me just the... the uh, scientific name, and uh, I didn't know that it had such a cool common name. So, uh, Also, this is the first orchid we're talking about the show, which is pretty amazing since that is like the largest genus of flowering plant, or largest family of flowering plants, right? The, the yeah. Orchids. yeah, so it has like over 20,000 mild species already, and it actually, because I also thought it was the largest flowering plant species, uh, or family. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but uh, I actually learned that the Asteraceae are kind of also contentiously, like maybe around the same, uh, and so I don't want to make a specific, you know, claim okay. about which one has more or not, because uh, I don't want to get any flack from you know, Astro yeah. fans. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've, I've talked about a number of Asteraceae's uh, on the show, and I and I remember mentioning, I think on the show, that the orchid was bigger. But yeah, you're right, they're close. But anyway, it is interesting that, that it is like, it, if not the biggest, the second biggest, and I mm -hmm. haven't talked about with orchids about with anybody, and, and maybe we can get into, I wonder why. I have some thoughts on that. Let's get into that later. First, let's mm -hmm. talk about why you chose this specific one. And let's say the name again, the Thunderstorm Orchid. Thunderstorm Orchid, yes. And what was that um, uh, scientific name again? 
It is Dendrobium cruminatum. Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. Yes, uh, yeah. Why, why did you choose? Yeah. Why did you choose the thunderstorm orchid? Yeah. So I would consider this plant to be like my spark plant or the plant species that got me into plants at large. This is one of two orchid species that I ended up studying in sort of my first big undergraduate research project. Uh, this was then a project that I ended up working on for multiple years later. Uh, and, you know, I sort of, when that project ended, I had a much deeper fascination for not only how beautiful plants can be, but also how, you know, unique and diverse and fascinating they can be. And it sort of took me down this path that I'm still going on of, you know, learning and understanding and interacting with plants. Uh, and sort of, you know, another big reason, this is sort of the other half of it. Uh, I actually, it's the only tattoo I have on my body oh, is of cool. this orchid. Uh, this was sort of it took, I worked on this for about two years in my undergrad. It got me through COVID mostly. So I like spent a semester instead of doing online courses. I just worked full time on this research project. And, you know, just in my sort of little tiny room, just sort of toiling away at this big research project. And for a lot of that, I was just sort of telling myself, if this ever gets published, I want to uh, get a tattoo commemorating, you know, the study species that I worked on. But sort of over the years since, it's sort of evolved now, sort of, you know, I always look at it as sort of, you know, the first plant that started off for me, uh, sort of, you know, my first big study species. And, you know, the plant that I always like to look back on, of just sort of reminding me how, you know, wonderful plants are in general. Awesome. You, you said, now you said a phrase there, spark plant. Is that something you came up with? I've never heard that before, but it's very, I think it's very germane to this podcast and I like it. So can you tell me more about that phrase? Yeah. So I heard sort of like spark species as it's, I think it's popular mostly in the birding community. Mm. Um, sort of like a spark bird, like my partner right now is, uh, she's a birder and she's looking at graduate school for uh, ornithology. And it's sort of a really common question within that field is just like, what's your spark bird? Um, uh -huh. And I really, I just like that because, you know, it isn't just for birding, it's for anyone that engages with, you know, the natural world. A lot of people have sort of, a, you know, a species that they're first introduced to that made them sort of quite like, oh my gosh, like the natural world is so interesting. I want to, you know, interact with this more. Uh, and I, you know, for me in like academia personally, I also feel like, you know, you sort of need that, like, species to hinge on to so that you're not just, you know, going deep in the literature, but you're actually attaching it then to, you know, a real-life living organism uh, that you can that's, still be passionate about. That's a great phrase. Honestly, I feel like this podcast is just asking people about what their spark plan yeah, is. So exactly. that is, I, I'm glad to know that term. So uh, thank you for that. Um very cool. I'm trying to think what my spark plant would be, and it's it's a, you know, tough joint because I talk about a plan in our episode, but... The first one that comes to mind for me, which I've talked about before, is uh, sunchokes. And mm. it's when I was first getting into gardening and I learned that they were a thing. I didn't know that there was this plant. And that the fact there's this plant that can produce like tons, like literally like pounds of, of, of tubers per plant. And it was a plant that I had never heard of before. Um, I was like, oh, this is a cool world of like growing food and... Uh, and native food and things like that and kind of overlooked plants. And so maybe maybe I would pick that one. And I did try to grow that in my first garden. I wasn't super successful, but now I am. Um, uh, but okay, let's get into the Thunderstorm Orchid. What are some fun facts and dazzling details? I bet you got a lot to share about that plant. Yeah, so I think sort of because this is the first orchid, uh, which is again, such this, you know, this humongous family, I want to at least give a little bit of an overview about trace that this one specific species has, but that pretty much all orchids have in general, because mm -hmm. uh, it'll also help to sort of understand uh, what makes this particular orchid really unique and special and what I really love about it. Cool. And um, I don't know nothing about orchids, so I'm, I'm happy for this. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, so one, uh, so sort of just to dive right in, uh, orchid flowers are zygomorphic, uh, or they have bilateral symmetry. So this means mm. if you cut the orchid flower in half, top to bottom, one side would look just like the other, similar to human faces and other faces do. Mm -hmm. Most other flowers are radially symmetric, so they look similar all the way around. But with orchids, it's sort of perfectly symmetrical like our faces. So that's something ah. that can separate them from a lot of other plants. I don't know if there's other plant families that also have that or not, but. Um, that is super interesting. Though. It also, yeah, yeah. it makes for a good tattoo also, cause you can just sort of, you know, 
perfect symmetry right there. Yeah. Uh, talking then about the flowers themselves, what also sort of makes them unique. So they're made up of three sepals and three petals, with the sepals and petals looking highly similar to one another, with the exception of one petal that is highly modified. And now that highly modified petal forms the lip, also known as the labellum, which is used mainly to attract pollinators. And in some cases, acts sort of as the landing pad for pollinators, for them to then yeah. access nectar or where they at least think nectar is going to be. That's that little, like, tongue thing almost, or uh, lip is maybe a better word. And also, I may, I'm thinking about that now, maybe something in a bit orchids. Sometimes is that a, is that a thing to, to only allow certain insects in, right? It's, like, designed to, like need a certain amount of weight to lower is that the same right some of them yeah I, I mean we can have you know a whole separate like other podcast just about like every single kind of orchid and the super unique ways that they have and the relationships yeah. that they have with their pollinators you know orchids in general like uh as a family they can date back to over 100 million years ago wow so they're incredibly old and some specific species have had like millions and millions of years to hyper-specialized with a specific pollinator. So, you know, cool. you could have countless other examples that uh, I will definitely leave for, you know, future yeah. episodes maybe. Okay, uh, yeah, to go yeah. Into. Awesome, um, okay, great. This is already very enlightening. Please continue. Um, yeah, so one thing that I actually learned uh, in researching for this episode is the pollen of orchids is not dispersed individually like it is for a lot of other plants, but rather all of the pollen is clumped up in these large waxy bundles called pollinia. Hmm. So, and it's sort of a sticky substance too. So when, let's say there's a bee pollinator, it's going into the orchid to get nectar, let's say. This pollinia just sort of like attaches itself to the hind legs or the back of that pollinator. And that just sort of carries all this pollen with it in flight and then it sort of when it visits another individual can sort of it then sort of just sticks back into that other individual orchid on those sex organs interesting wow that's cool but the thing that i that's i thought was also really neat that i just learned was that because it has this pollinium not these sort of individually dispersed pollens is that this makes orchids hypoallergenic oh yeah which because they're because they're, they're not only i mean we talked about this a few episodes about um uh, what are those words for wind pollinated versus insect pollinated? Uh, there's a there's a fancy word for that. Um, uh, I'm blanking on it now. But yeah, I, there, yeah. There, there's a lot of plants that are specifically are mostly insect pollinators. Some they're mostly wind pollinated. But even the ones that are insect pollinated, because they have individual pollen particles, can get into the air and get up your nose. Mm -hmm. But a uh, orchid, because it's got like this bigger like sac, it's you're unlikely to like. Uh, ingested in that way to be allergen is that what you're saying yeah it's sort of because it's sort of it's in this like waxy substance so it actually would require some amount of effort to like break it apart <laughs> like if you got tweezers and yeah i guess there's a really efficient way to like you know yeah interesting <laughs> that's really cool um another uh, sort of interesting aspect too about orchids and sort of their reproduction in general oh, is, wait wait sorry Entomophilus and anemophilus. Those are the two words for anemophilus oh. is wind pollinated. Entomophilus is uh, insect pollinated. Sorry, they just oh. popped into my head. <laughs> Sweet. Nice. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't know that either. So I'll definitely use that in my next yeah. like, Scrabble game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so orchid seeds are also exceptionally tiny, which I know this was just talked on, mm. talked about in one of your recent, I think, the uh, the poppy uh, episode. Or the, 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 str the striga, maybe? I think it was the California. It might oh, the been. California poppy. Yeah, oh, no, both. Yes, yes. California poppy. Where they're, uh, uh, yes. they're exceptionally tiny. Uh, they're so tiny that they do not carry any endosperm, uh, which mm. is the substance that they need for them to provide energy on their own. So instead, these tiny orchid seeds rely on mycorrhizal fungi in order to germinate and provide them nutrients until they can grow leaves and can photosynthesize. Whoa! Is that which, true for all orchids? Um, there, I mean, or not some, all, I guess. Sure. The you know overwhelming majority, yes. Whoa, that is phenomenal. Yeah, and then there's all this variation. Like it's not just one you know species or genus of mycorrhizal fungi. For different genuses and species of orchids, they have positive associations with only certain types of mycorrhizal fungi, and it's super complicated. And considering just you know how you know old and diverse and just 
you know, prevalent orchids are throughout the globe, it is somewhat fascinating that, you know, given the strategy of they rely so heavily on the mycorrhizal fungi that they're still so, you know, successful and prevalent. Yeah. But, uh, but sort of the the uh, the flip side, you know, what they lose in nutrients, they're making up for in numbers. So within a single orchid fruiting body, uh, which they can produce multiple of at a time, if they've, you know, been successfully pollinated, a single fruiting body can contain hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these individual microscopic seeds. So when one dehisses or sort of just opens up and explodes and lets all those seeds sort of get wind dispersed, the idea is they would hopefully cover a large enough, like, you know, surface area on nearby, you know, soils or trees or, because they can, you know, they can be on rocks, plants, uh, the soil, depending on the different species, that hopefully that one of those little spots will have the mycorrhizal fungi. Yeah, it's like a it's like a it's like a numbers game, right? You just yeah. like most of them don't make it, but you have so many. Even if like a half of a half of a percent don't make it, you still have like a few individuals that make it. Yeah, because so be like a thousand. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Wow, wow, that's that's really interesting. Um, okay, that's an interesting one thing. I always you always think about orchids, at least at the layman, is that orchids are like the people who grow them get really into it and they're like notoriously like finicky to grow and is that one of the reasons why it's like you can't just put the seed in the soil you need to have this like environment i guess with mycorrhizal fungi to like get one to grow from seed yeah i think that that that's definitely one of the big reasons mm -hmm. i do think that and i'm no ex i'm you know i can't even take care of like you know a, the most simplest and easiest of plans. So I'm also not fully <laughs> certain, but I do think that you can sort of potentially recreate sort of those mycorrhizal fungi conditions mm -hmm. potentially. Yeah. But also some orchids are just super specific in the conditions that they need in general beyond just their mycorrhizal fungi. Like they might need certain sunlight or other things, but I do think that I didn't really think about that in terms of why, you know, orchid growers might like them for how complex they are, but that does make sense. Interesting. Um, all right. What else have we got about orchids in general before we dive into the thunderstorm orchid? That was sort of, those are sort of the big ones. Cool. Um, so to sort of, you know, given all that information with this thunderstorm orchid, it is an epiphytic orchid, which means that it grows not on the soil or on the ground, but it grows on the surface of another plant, mm. predominantly like tree branches or tree trunks. Because that's sort of where the mycorrhizal fungi is. It doesn't, but it also, it isn't extracting any nutrients from that sort of like, quote unquote, like host tree or anything. It's not mm -hmm. parasitic or anything. It's just sort of, it's just simply living on it. It's sort of just, you know, it's just sticking to it, but it doesn't really affect the host tree at all. And the thunderstorm orchid itself is native to the lowland tropical rainforest of Southeast Asia, but it has uh, in the past few decades or, you know, in a lot of the 21st century, it has begun to naturalize and spread to a lot of other parts of the world. Uh, so the mm. place that I ended up researching it was in Puerto Rico. It is spread mm. not just there uh, in the early 2000s, uh, but then also through a lot of other Caribbean islands in Hawaii and in the seashells. This is a very popular orchid in the uh, horticultural trade. And we will get in a little bit as to potentially why it's had such a good job at naturalizing and then spreading throughout these regions as well. Fascinating. Yeah, please continue. So I guess sort of the elephant in the room with this one is, uh, you know, why it's called the thunderstorm orchid. And it's, you know, similarly the exact same reason why I think that this orchid is super fascinating. And it all ties into its very unique and interesting reproductive strategy that it employs in order to give itself an edge within the highly diverse and competitive neotropics. So this particular orchid only flowers a few times a year and almost exclusively nine days after a thunderstorm or serious rain event. Interesting. Wow. So their flowering is set off by a dip in temperature by about five degrees Celsius or 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And within, you know, these equatorial, neotropical rainforests, you know, you're not getting seasonal changes. It's pretty much the same temperature mm -hmm. or if it's, it's only by like, you know, half that amount. But in these areas, that dip in temperature might occur during a thunderstorm or like a severe like downpour, you know, rainstorm event. So approximately then nine days after that dip in temperature occurs, 
all of the flowers for that plant where that dip in temperature occurred will flower at the exact same time and for only one day. So that mm. by the next day, they're all wilted and they're gone. And what that sort of looks like for this plant, oh, also that, you know, that's why it's called a thunderstorm orchid is uh -huh, because uh -huh. it flowers only when there's been a thunderstorm. But what this flowering event looks like, because it's not just, you know, oh, there's one flower and it's cool. This is a massive event uh, that I, you know, blew my mind in terms of what orchid flowering could look like. Because mm -hmm. this is not just, you know, a couple of flowers at any one given time. This is, you know, upwards of 200 plus of these small, tiny, sort of white orchid flowers all bundled together in almost like this humongous, like, rose bush kind of size, like really huge, almost think like a bush in the middle of a tree. Wow. Hundreds of individual white flowers all blooming at the exact same time for one day only. And they're producing this very, very pungent smell. You can smell from really, really far away. Some of the homeowners that I was talking to in Puerto Rico were complaining that it smells like cockroaches or like something was burning. Mm. I didn't think it actually smelled that bad, but it is like, it's hard to really describe uh, how it, it's just, it's very strong and unique and you can smell it from across the yard. So mm -hmm. if you're a pollinator here, you know, A, you can see this huge bundle of white flowers that pop out in the sea of green of a tropical rainforest. But you can also smell it from really far away. And you know, that was not there yesterday. This is like, mm -hmm. you know, the hot new thing on the block. And it's, you know, a bunch of flowers. They probably have a bunch of nectar in them. So for that one day only, this, this plant becomes pollinator central with a bunch of different, and it's pollinated by bees. That's also important to know. A bunch mm -hmm. of these bees all visiting it, you know, pretty much like within hours of it blooming. But the genius of it, you know, is if you're just putting all of your like eggs in one basket, or I guess maybe flowers, mm -hmm. in this case, flowers in one basket for that one day, that doesn't really get you anywhere if you're the only one doing it because the name of the game for these orchids is cross-pollination. You know, mm -hmm. if they just pick up your pollinia and then they just go somewhere else, that doesn't help them. It's about, you know, picking up your pollinia and then transporting it to another individual of the same species later that day. But because this flowering event is set off by you know, a weather event that happens over a large geographic area, you're almost guaranteed that you're not going to be the only flower, you know, the only plant flowering for that day. It's mm. probably going to be any other thunderstorm orchid anywhere close to you. And because they're also producing all these different flowers and they're also producing that strong smell, the same pollinator that visited you is most likely also going to visit that one because they're sort of increasing their chances that you know, they are going to outcompete any other flower species that could, you know, vie for the attention of that pollinator. So, you know, this sort of unique yeah. tying it to a thunderstorm, which doesn't happen that frequently either. You know, we could see that, you know, that increases the chances that you're going to get visited, but that also you just, it's a really successful and viable strategy for a successful uh, cross-pollination, which is, you know, the key to your species persisting to the next generation. Yeah, interesting. So like and and it's like you can save all that energy for the time when when you can like it's like a it's like a one day only sale, right? It's yeah. like, or like right? It's like everyone like rushes it's like Black Friday but for bees, right? Everyone rushes for like the the really great deal on pollen cuz it's like so prevalent. Really interesting. Yeah, exactly. No, and it's and we can see too that this strategy works really well because at least informally this isn't published or anything, but when we were looking at these flowers, you know, at the end of the day, um, almost all of the pollinia is removed from these wow. plants, from all of these flowers. And if you're going, you know, in the coming weeks, you're seeing that there's this super high ratio of fruit set, which is sort of emblematic of successful pollination, where one fruit mm -hmm. means one cross-pollination event, to the number of flowers that were previously present. And I don't know how that compares to a lot of other plant species, but it clearly works really well. And we can then also see that it works well because this is a, like a natural, like an orchid that is naturalized beyond its native range and is spreading pretty quickly, you know, to different parts of the globe, even though it relies so heavily on, you know, a unique pollinator and, you know, there's this sort of bottleneck of mycorrhizal fungi and things like that. Even with all of that, it's still able to spread, you know, successfully in these other areas. And it's probably helped in part 
anecdotally, I'm just thinking about the plum tree I have in my yard where I had tons of flowers and got three plums. So the, 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 the successful like fruit set is not is that is very uh, impressive. Um, okay, so so the question here is interesting. Uh, okay, one question is is it is it is it a specific bee that pollinates it? Is it the honey bee or is it any bee or is it is it like is it like very specific pollinators? Because the the fact that it is like multi, you know across the globe is interesting as far as like what is pollinating it. Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. From my understanding, it is sort of it's not pollinate. It was never sort of meant to be pollinated by a specific species. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of it's pollinated by a honey bee sized bee. Mm-hmm. That is a pretty you know I think common size for a lot of different bee species. So at least when I was there, there were multiple different bee species that were visiting it in Puerto Rico. None of those were its native you know counterpart. But I think yeah. it's just fortunately it's just this you know pretty common size pollinator. Mm-hmm. So when it is going to these different areas, there's just another bee that could be very distantly related, but it just so happens to be the same size, and it can actually fit into the orchid and fall into the trap of the polynia, uh, getting attached to its hind legs. Can the honeybee also pollinate it? That I don't know off the top of my head. I would ima- I don't actually know if the honeybee was in Puerto Rico, and I, I don't know enough about. So. I mean, there should be, there should. I'm a beekeeper, so I'm asking bee questions here. Uh, I mean, the honeybee is everywhere, right? Because we keep bees, right? So yeah. it's like, you know, like, so I definitely, there's some honeybees in Puerto Rico, now what, maybe, maybe where you were, um, you're not in the range of some some hives or something, but like honeybees are also a naturalized species across the globe, mm-hmm. um, even though they're originally from Europe and, and Africa. Um, and I and I, well, and you know, was it so? Was it a solitary bee species that is? It's like in Southeast Asia that it's like it's um, a pollinator or some other kind of bee. Do you know the specific like pollinator in its home range? These were things that were definitely part of my research project and like yeah. my published paper, but I've since forgotten about. But, <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> yeah. but yeah, I don't know the specifics about the bee. But I think you bring up a good point that I think it is just it just so happens to be, you know, a type of bee that is common in a lot of different ecosystems and that's helped it out a lot. Yeah, and I think bees, you know, there's a ton of different bees and some bees get pretty specific on what they pollinate. But I think in general, bees, you know, like the honeybee is like the world's most versatile pollinator, right? That's a reason why we keep it because it will just pollinate anything that it can get nectar out of. It's, 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 that's one reason it's been so successful. But a few other bees species are like that. There's a number of stingless bees that, that aren't as like specific. And um, yeah, so that makes sense. Like, and then, yeah, a lot of solitary bees, I think, aren't that specific either. So Unlike, unlike, you know, I think there's wasps that get really hyper-specific on what they pollinate and st- things like that. So, uh, that, that's interesting. Um, uh, okay. Where, what was the next question? Uh, pl- why don't you continue? Because I had, a, I think, a million other questions. It's so fascinating. But, well, I'm going to jump back on the train in my questions <laughs> here in a second because I, I lost my train. Uh, sort of just to... The only other sort of note that I have about this flowering event, the official like term for what it's called is mast flowering, so mm. M-A-S-T, also known as gregarious flowering. And this is, and like the official definition is, you know, where all populations of a specific species across a large geographic range all roughly flower at the same time. But, and this is the big qualifier, at irregular intervals. So you can see mm-hmm. like, you know, huge, you know, wildflowers you know, fields and anywhere in North America, but those are flowering, you know, every day for, you know, mm-hmm. whole season or things like that. Or it's like, you know, only in May does this flower, but this is like, this is, you know, there's no predictor generally. It's just nine days after a severe rain event. Interesting. Uh, wow. Do you know anything about the, um, the mechanism for like day counting or like how that, how that happens? I think that's such a good question. Now, I don't know this, but my best guess is I think it's just they start, I I think it's like it's just sending signals to the plant when this dip in temperature happens to start developing its flowers. Uh And I think that the process of developing the flowers just takes nine days. That makes sense. Yeah. But for all of them, they're starting at the exact same time because, you know. They're triggered by that temperature difference. Yeah. Yeah. So then I think it's just nine days later is when it happens. I don't know if it's like. Because, you know, I don't think that the actual number of days itself matters. I think as long as they're the same across all individuals in an area. 
yeah, that's that's really really fascinating. Um, let me think here. What what I had one more question. I feel like, and now I've I've lost it. Um, yeah, I I I, I don't know. I have a lot to think about. This is super interesting. <laughs> uh, oh oh, we were going to talk about. Oh yes, why it's popular in cultivation. You said that it's a popular cultivated one, and it seems like a weird one because you have to like make it rain in your apartment if you're like growing it, or you know, like yeah, that's that's the question. Yeah, so this is actually this is something that also puzzled me because the reason that it's popular, you know, in Puerto Rico, like the reason it's in Puerto Rico in the first place is the horticultural trade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, but it is like you know. When it does flower, it's beautiful. And that might be just the photos that people are seeing when they look this up. Like, you know, I could send you some photos that I saw of just like, you're getting this humongous, you know, bush of beautiful orchids. And you're like, that looks amazing. I'd love this in my front yard. But then maybe, I, I mean, I don't know what people know when they're purchasing it, but you know, the other 360 days of the year, it's just, you know, a pile of leaves and it just looks like a dead bush or like this big scraggly sort of thing. Interesting. So, and you know, and especially when I was talking to people and they were saying it smelled like cockroaches or something was burning, I was like, what? Like, what is the upside to this, <laughs> like having this in your yard? But I, I do know that it's at least very, very popular in Southeastern Asia, where it is native to, um, mm -hmm. and that people really, really like the orchid there. I think that it does, and I, I read this online and I, I wasn't able to fact check it anything but i did read that it was used uh in southeast asia it's like if you put this on your front door that this could be used to ward away bad spirits and things mm -hmm. like this like it's a good omen uh especially i think it's maybe in this relationship to thunderstorms and mm -hmm. sort of showing like healing and things like that but if that you know i also don't want to just spread misinformation i don't know why it's like so popular in the horticultural trade it, but yeah like, but that, that is area. But that is what, because I was thinking about how it spread, and you think about how a lot of um, a lot of plants spread and become invasive, and it has to do with humans moving them, sometimes by accident, sometimes on purpose. But you think with something like this orchid that that has these seeds that that are, you know, pretty delicate, that that accidental transfer might be more difficult, and so it is probably specifically, as you said, it is people actually like importing them and and then growing them and then maybe them getting into the wild that way mm -hmm. yeah and i think and maybe also the word of mouth too or just when you see the flowering event like i mean speaking from personal experience you're like this is so beautiful i would want this in my yard so it could also just be some one person does it and then their neighbors see it and they're like oh could i just get a like a cutting of that the other flip side of it too that was sort of funny was a lot of times it also wasn't really an intentional decision to have it in people's yards. Uh -huh. You know, because these are wind dispersed seeds, a great vector for sort of wind dispersal is just roads. Oh, sure. So when we go to a lot of these different neighborhoods, we would see like what we would, what I would call like the source plant was just this humongous, you know, thunderstorm orchid with, you know, what would probably be over a hundred individual flowers. And then you just go a little bit down the road and you just see all these other tinier ones, you know, further mm -hmm. downhill. And we couldn't actually talk to, you know, any of the, uh, we didn't talk to a lot of different homeowners uh, mm -hmm. just because we were coming in the middle of the day trying to yeah. record it. But it was sort of funny of just, you just get one, if just one of your neighbors, you know, puts this in their yard, it'll very quickly spread. And I do also think too, like, because I was also thinking about this a lot of like an invasive, what an invasive orchid is. Because I uh -huh. think, you know, for me, if like an orchid just showed up in my like front lawn, I'd probably think, oh, sweet. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. I love orchids. Like, that's yeah. amazing. And especially in the neotropics where there's just orchids everywhere, you probably don't even think like, is this yeah. native or not? Um, so I think that's, you know, probably also part of the role is I think when we think of orchids, we think of this really beautiful flower that you know can't do much harm or things like that so there might also be some sort of relationship there too of like how we are controlling like a specific species that is within a you know a family that we don't really think about as invasive but is you know individually you know really great at naturalizing in an area and spreading really really quickly because it has a very unique sort of reproductive strategy that we you know might not expect
trade my yesterday for a ransom of gold. They hold all my memories of a love story old. You know that you belong. That blooms in my bouquet. Very, very interesting. Um, well, thank you for sharing about the Thunderstorm Orchid mm-hmm. with me. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Yes, please do. Okay, I'm really glad that you had such a deep dive here because this, I feel like, I found some stuff about this plant, but I feel like this was a little bit of a fizzle um, of this plant. And I, I think it's not my fault. I think it's like uh, human interest in general. That's why I couldn't find so much about this plant because it's, it's definitely not as, at least on the surface, as captivating as your plant, for example. But this is another one of those plants that I selected because it's one that is growing in my yard. And it's one of the ones that's happened several times on the podcast where I'm out in my yard and I look at it and I'm like, hey, what, what is that thing? <laughs> what is that weed that's growing in my lawn? Um, and, uh, and so that's where this, this plant is. And I was, look, I, was, you know, I was out in my yard and I saw amongst the grass uh, these these things that look like grass but at the top they had this little poof of seeds that kind of looked like a bottle brush um and I, so I, I used an, an app to figure out what it was and it turns out it is called the cypress strigosus and it is commonly known as straw colored flat sedge which is my plant oh. and uh and and like i said I, I couldn't find a ton of fascinating details about this in fact most of the fun facts and dozen details i have about this plant or how it is like or unlike other plants, because it specifically, there's not a ton out there about it. Um, but let's let's just first break down the name stuff. I love the etymology of things. So, mm-hmm. Cypress strigosa. Cypress is the genus that comes from the Greek word kyperos, which is the Greek word for sedge. And so it's a flat sedge. Um, uh, strigosus uh, means bristled, so it looks like a bottle brush. When it when it is in flower, and uh, that's what strigosis means. So uh, it is the 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 bristled sedge, I guess, if you want to translate that. Straw colored flat sedge. Those bristles look like the color are the color of straw. So that's very obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, f- uh, flat flat is interesting, and sedge is interesting. Now sedge is one of those ones that I had to be like, I don't think I really know what a sedge is. <laughs> I've heard of sedge, <laughs> but what what is sedge? Uh, so I I looked that up, and this is my understanding: sedge is it's it's a monocot. It is grass-like, but it different. It differentiates itself from a grass, and where grass normally has either flat or hollow stem, hollow rounded stems, sedges have a solid triangular stem. So they might be flat up where the leaf is, but down at the base they're triangular, and that leads to the mnemonic that I've learned, which I'll always keep with me now, which is sedges have edges. That's mm, how you tell the difference. Nice. They've got yeah, so that's good. Now it's called the flat sedge because that genus Cypress, in general, the um, the seed uh, heads are uniquely flat. They have this flat like the, they're they're sticking out in a bottle brush shape, but they're like they're very small. It's hard to hard to see, but they're like a flat seed pod, a flattened seed pod, which makes them interesting. However, I think straw colored flat sedge doesn't have flattened seed pods it's just in that same genus and so it is called a flat sedge even though it doesn't have that flat sedge uh uh iconic flat sedge look it's just like that's Mm -hmm. the the cypresses are the flat sedges there's other there's other sedges that are i think carex is another really big genus of sedge um but uh yeah so so that's it's a so that's that's the name uh, straw colored flat sedge uh, it is, it is not necessarily. It's a flat sedge that doesn't have the flat seed heads like other flat sedges. At least not from what I could see. Maybe, maybe. Anyway, it's a little bit uh, unclear. Um, it is also uh, a graminoid, which uh, I understand just means grass-like. So there's a number of things like that. Um, so that's that's interesting. Now let's talk about a few of the things that it's not. Um, that are interesting. So there is, uh, it is sometimes called false nut sedge. And I was like, that's an interesting nut sedge. Why is it, what is a nut sedge and why is it the false nut sedge? Yeah. Like, you know? So there is another cypress, which I'm, do I have the name of that written down here? 
uh, Cyprus. Oh, I'm sorry, audience. I don't have it written down. But there's another Cyprus that is called Nutsedge. Um, and it's called Nutsedge because the, the Nutsedge has a little tuber at the base of the sedge that is edible and tastes very kind of nut-like. Uh, some people say like a hazelnut. Mm. The one in my yard, it looks very similar, but it does not have that little tuber. It's it's uh, more of a, a corm-like structure with stolons, and so it's not as edible. So it, it's a false nut sedge. That's why it's, it's sometimes called that. But I was really interested in this um, in this uh, this other plant, which is so. Oh, the one in my yard is native to this uh, to this continent. Mm. The nut sedge, as far as I can tell, is more from like uh, Europe and Asia, and there is like cultural use of that plant. But this one doesn't have that history. But I thought that was pretty interesting. I want. I guess the nut sedge is also uh, naturalized over here. I want to see if I can find one because that'd be kind of fun to eat the two small tuber of a of a of a of a sedge. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, but unfortunately, the one in my yard does not have that. Um, so so that is uh, one other thing. It's like, but is not. The other one that I that I found that was interesting, which I had, I don't know anything. I'm, I'm, I don't. I think we ignore grasses in general, like mm-hmm. mono, monocots. We ignore a lot, and grasses. We just kind of like really kind of blend in the background. Um, yeah. And so I had never heard of genus Cypress before, but it is a really really big genus, and there's a lot of other plants in it. And maybe the one that's most famous of the Cypresses is Cypress papyrus, which is. The, the, the papyrus we know from the first paper. So the plant in my yard is a is a cousin to papyrus. And when you look at them, papyrus just looks like a really big version of the little one in my yard. Mm. So yeah. Um that that's basically all I could find. I think I think because it's not edible, it's just grass, we ignore a lot. There's not a lot of like scientific research on it. Most of the scientific papers are just how it's spreading in other places around the globe. Right. Mm. So it's native here, but it's popping up in Europe and Asia. Um so when I looked up scientific papers, that's all I could find is just its distribution in other places. Um, but but the thing that I liked about it is um, most of the time when there's a grass in my yard, I'm trying to like slowly get rid of the lawn. I've got a lot of raised mm, beds and things yeah. like that. But most of the time, the grass in my yard is non-native, right? It's it's Bermuda grass, it's um, Dallas grass, it's all these other crabgrass invasive grasses that we have decided we want to like cultivate as monocultures in our yards right but <laughs> yeah but the straw colored flat sedge is a native grass growing in my yard and that's pretty cool and it's a bummer that people haven't written tons about it and i don't know more interesting things about it and it's interesting history i'm sure there's more like a uh, natural history about it that that could be learned but i just like that it's native and so <laughs> this is one of the things that um uh i'm sure my my drives my neighbors crazy like my yard is pretty wild Part of its laziness, part of its I like seeing what's growing and stuff like this. But when I discovered this, you know, for this episode, I was like, okay, this is the plant I'm going to talk about because I saw it growing. I saw the unique seed head in my yard. I realized it's native. When I went to go mow the lawn the next day, there was a whole row of it, and I just mowed around it <laughs> because I'm like, <laughs> let me let this go to seed. Let me like let this thing like spread in my yard. And um, and so now, like you know, you look at my yard, and there's just like this weird big patch of tall sedge. <laughs> That I just left alone, which makes me probably look like an like you know someone who's not quite all there. Uh, right. <laughs> like, but I'm hoping it'll go to seed, and maybe next year I'll have more native grass and less of the other invasives, right? Which I've talked about a lot of those in the podcast: bluegrass, mm-hmm. um, uh, Dallas grass, um, uh, Bermuda grass. All those things are are uh, non-natives that we we purposely put in our our lawns. Whereas this is not; nobody is like purposely putting this in their yard maybe it's part of a grass mix somewhere i'm not sure but um but yeah maybe i would be happy to have more uh straw colored flat sedge in my lawn instead of this other one so l- hopefully i can i can uh this little patch i left unmowed will go to seed and and next year there'll be more yeah i'm rooting for you that, i'm a huge proponent of like native lawns and things but it would be great if you can still use native grasses because i feel like grasses in general have been getting somewhat of a bad rep because of lawns in some ways, at least, you know, thinking about what native lawns can and can't be. Uh, and when we think of, you know, grass species, I usually just think of, you know, the typical like buffalo grass and Dallas grass and things like that. But it is interesting that there's this little patch of native grass that's like, you know, trying to find its little spot in your lawn. Yeah, and this, that's a really good point, too, about grasses 
not getting like the right credit because we have a ton of awesome native grasses. It's just we haven't been trying to grow those in front yards for the better part of a century, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when, when lawns became a thing, we decided to just choose all these like super, you know, what we now understand is invasive um, uh, species. And yeah, when you, when you look at like a native prairie, right, which is full of native grasses, um, it's something special. And so, yeah, I don't know how much luck I'll have with like really fighting all these invasives in my yard, but I'm trying a little bit. I keep going back and forth in this like world of like how hardcore do I need to be about eradicating the invasives in my yard, the non-natives in my yard or not. But, you know, at least I can encourage this, this, uh, um, at least according to academia, unremarkable flat sedge (laughs) to grow in my yard. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, let, let it be what it, what it is. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. I mean, also another thing that I've been, cause I'm glad that you actually brought up this species. Cause the thing that I've been trying to think about too is, you know, I also think, you know, for making spark plants a thing that, you know, if that's mm-hmm. a new term, you know, I think spark plants for a lot of people are just the flowers or, you know, the big showy orchid or mm-hmm. things like that. And I think also just within botany, you know, those are always the plants get, that get a lot of the attention within the community. Mm-hmm. But I've been trying to think about, you know, everything doesn't have to be some like rare species that's exotic and far away. There's a lot of beauty in just, you know, the native species that seems unremarkable, you know, that, giving that the attention that, you know, we give to a lot of other species can actually, we can learn a lot from, you know, these other species as well. And it also makes the natural world a lot more accessible as well, you know, rather than having to go really far to some wildflower, you know, field, you can just look in front of your front yard and there's a native grass right there and you can learn a lot from, from that. Uh, well, I think that was very well said and a great way to end the show. So Evan, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Thank you so much for having me. Sedge. Sedge. Straw-colored flat sedge. As you could probably imagine, there are not that many songs about sedges but as you can see i found a solution to that i also have this one sedge sedge so attention to musicians out there the market for sedge based songs is wide open sedge Straw-colored flat sedge. One thing that Evan mentioned that we didn't get too deep into was the fact that all orchids require this relationship with a mycorrhizal fungi, and I thought that was so fascinating. I had to look up a little bit more about that. And wow, is it fascinating, and wow, is it uh, complicated. Um, And also, wow, we don't, really know a lot about it, or at least there's not a lot of easily digestible information out there about it. But what a super fascinating uh, concept. So let's just define that term um, mycorrhizal first. Uh, I think I didn't really know what that means. I knew it had to do with funguses and how they communicate with plants. But uh, it's pretty easy. Myco has to do with fungus, uh, mycology, you know that word. And then uh, rhize or rhize has to do with the... uh, the rhizosphere of plants, and that has to do with uh, the root system, essentially. So, like, rhizomes are under the ground. Um, that word rhizome, rhizo, has to do with roots. So, mycorrhizal are are uh, the fungi that, that are associated with the roots of plants. And that is also a huge topic. Uh, the way that orchids work is just, like, one way that mycorrhizal fungi work with plants. It's really, really fascinating. But let's just talk a little bit more about what I found out about uh, the orchid-specific system. And yes, it's true that 
like all orchids need this relationship with fungi to uh, germinate. Uh, they cannot germinate without mycorrhizal fungi. Also, and this, this varies depending on the different orchids, some orchids really need that fungi uh, all through their life in, in some ways. In fact, some uh, plants are completely reliant on the mycorrhizal fungi relationship. They don't photosynthesize at all. It's, it's a little bit similar to when we talked about the parasitic plants, it, except in this case, it's with the mycorrhizal uh, fungi, not the roots of another plant. And in some cases, this is called a parasitic relationship with the fungus. The plant is parasitizing the fungus, but that's that's also complicated because like, in this case, it's like, what is parasitizing who? Uh, because interestingly, the majority of orchids form relationships with a kind of fungus that are called either saphotrophic or pathogenic fungi. And those are the fungi that uh, uh, break down plant material. So the, the orchid is getting the nutrients from the fungus that is getting its nutrients from breaking down dead material or indeed attacking a living thing. So really fascinating. Also, this relationship with orchids and mycorrhizal fungi is really, really old. It's apparently goes back to as, as far as like orchids have existed. And so what a really fascinating relationship between living creatures and really makes you think about kind of like mutualism in the natural world. And uh, just a really fascinating thing to think about. And this isn't a fungus podcast. You could do a whole, I mean, gosh, it's a whole other world, fungus and, and, and uh, fungi like that. But man, I thought that was super fascinating. And so really thankful to Evan for sharing that with me. And it's uh, one of those dazzling details that I really enjoy learning about on the show. And with that, uh, let's end this episode of Rootbound. Thank you for listening. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Evan Foster. Evan is a PhD student at the University of Notre Dame, and he's interested in plant community ecology. You can follow him on his great Instagram account, at Evan's Field Guide. If you like Rootbound and you want to help support the show, visit rootboundpodcast.com slash support to find all the ways you can help support the show, including just, just telling a friend about it. Rootbound is hosted by Steve The Sedge Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside and you don't know it already, see if you can discover your spark plant. Asterocame! Asterisae! Asteraceae! Asterocame! Asteracamo! Asterarcicola! Asterike! Douglas! Asteravarinaro! Astera. Asterasei!